Alright folks, I got another one today. It's um Um <clears throat> excuse me. This call is by it's an article by Clifton Snyder in the English department at at Emeritus Emeritus English Department Emeritus. California State University Long Beach. Alright. Um Okay, so it's called. I'll put the link in the description. It's called a Druidic difference: Emily Dickinson and shamanism. That Emily Dickinson published almost no poems while. Really? Okay. <clears throat> that Emily Dickinson published almost no poems. While she was alive, yet became enormously popular when her first book appeared four years after her death, is a well-known fact. In 1890, volume, the 1890 volume went through 11 printings and led to a series in, in 1891 and a third series in 1896. An edition of her letters appeared in 1894. Today, she and Walt Whitman are generally regarded as two greatest American poets of the 19th century. In Jungian terms, she is a visionary artist who compensates for collective psychic imbalance through an archetypal vision of another possibility. What Jung says of visionary literature clearly applies to the best of Dickinson's work. It can be a revelation whose heights and depths are beyond our fathoming, or a vision of beauty which we can never put into words. The primordial experiences rend from top to bottom the curtain upon which is painted the picture of an ordered world, and allow a glimpse into the unfathomable abyss of the unborn and of things yet to be. Something in her psyche drove her to probe those heights and depths, which were often beyond her own fathoming. This something Jung calls an in innate drive, and I believe that the archetype she chiefly represents and is driven by is shamanism. Not a shaman in the traditional sense, as described by Mercia Eliada in his classic shamanism, archaic techniques of ecstasy, Dickinson nevertheless fits Joan B. Townsend's description of neo-shamans as people often disenchanted with traditional religions and often with much of Western society. Although they tend not to be affiliated with any organized religion, they all continue intensive personal quests for spirituality, meaning, and transcendence. Her personal quest, her personal myth as expressed in her poetry, compensates for contemporary imbalance through a search for meaning in the face of the breakdown of collective myths. Had she lived in another era and been associated with a religion or belief system that included shamans, no doubt Dickinson would have been a shaman 
in the traditional sense, for she is concerned about the same mysteries that concern shamans, and investigates these mysteries using the, the imagery of shamanism. These mysteries include death and the afterlife, as well as suffering, loss, and healing. The word shaman comes from the Siberian Tungus tribe, and according to Eliada, shamanism in the strict, strict sense <clears throat> is preeminently a religious phenomenon of Siberia and Central Asia. Although he or she is not strictly speaking either one, the shaman has traits similar to the magician and medicine man, and beyond this he is a psychopomp and he may also be a priest, a mystic, and poet. Because it is an archetype, shamanism is not limited to Siberia and Central Asia. It is a worldwide phenomenon with roots in the Paleolithic period. Joan Halifax comments on the fact that shamanic knowledge is remarkably consistent across the planet. Further, the basic themes related to the art and practice of shamanism form a co coherent complex. An examination of Dickinson's poetry will demonstrate the American poet's close relationship to the shamanic state of mind. Oh, don't worry, this shit gets even better. <laughs> Eliada was about the first to link shamanism to the creation of lyric poetry. It is probable that the pre-ecstatic euphoria of the shaman constituted one of the universal sources of lyric poetry. Yes, the Akashic Record, the spirit world. Furthermore, um... By Cameral Mind, poetry, yes, it's, it's, yep. Furthermore, poetic creation still remains an act of perfect spiritual freedom. Poetry remakes and prolongs language. Every poetic language begins by being a secret language, that is, the creation of a personal universe, of a completely closed world. Like fucking Tolkien was doing with his whole his his whole world he was cre he was living he was basically C.S. Lewis Narniaing into the spirit world and coming back and writing all that shit down man <laughs> all right um furthermore poetic creation still okay close world Eliada's assessment of course applies to any great poet but it applies especially to Dickinson. He continues, the purest poetic act seems to recreate language from an inner experience that, like the ecstasy or the religious inspiration, inspiration of primitives, reveals the essence of things. Yeah, you literally go into the matrix code level of the spirit world and you can see everything in the energy form, in the, in the vibrations, basically. Um, that Dickinson has her own language, her own poetic vocabulary that probes her inner experience and creates a personal universe is clear to any perceptive reader. In Jungian terms, she has created her, her own personal myth, inspired by other poets such as Elizabeth Baird Browning, 
I think I was enchanted when first a somber girl. I read that foreign lady, the dark felt beautiful. All 593. All numbers refer to the numbers assigned to poems in Johnson's The Complete Poems of Emily Dickinson. Emily Dickinson created her own inimitable poetry. Inimitable, whatever. She had indeed what she disclaimed having a privilege so awful that would that would the doer be had I the art to stun myself with bolts of melody. <laughs> Alright, here here is her definition of a poet, which is a poem. <laughs> this was a poet. It is that distills amazing sense from ordinary meanings and attar so immense. From the familiar species that perished by the door, we wonder it was not ourselves arrested it before of pictures the the discloser the poet it is he entitles us by contrast to ceaseless poverty of portion so unconscious the robbing could not harm himself to him a fortune exterior to time the high value she places on poetry she reveals in the poem that begins i reckon when i count at all First, first she counts poets, then the sun and summer, and and she adds, But, looking back, the first so seems to comprehend the whole, the others look a needless show. So I write, poets all. Their summer lasts a solid year. They can afford a sun. The east would deem extravagant, and if the further heaven be beautiful as they prepare for those who worship them, it is too difficult a grace to justify the dream. <laughs> Dickinson, in both these poems, affirms Eliade's belief that lyric poetry reveals the essence of things. Yeah, because it's all, it's, it's basically going back to, like, oral tradition. In the beginning was the word. The word is sound, vibration. That's all it is. Before the written word was the spoken word the oral tradition and it was usually with poems and music it's poetry poetry and music because also that's that helps you remember remember uh something very easily when you add a music and shit rhymes it's very easy to remember okay dickinson in both these poems affirms Eliade's belief that lyric poetry reveals the essence of things Living in the middle of the 19th century, Dickinson, a product of New England Puritanism, <laughs> rejected membership in the church and the, and the conversion offered by the many religious revivals that descended on her hometown of Amherst, Massachusetts. In her early years, still she was troubled by such Puritan ideas as divine imminence, providential history, the whole duty of man, the sense of being chosen or elected, the idea of redemption, most important of all, the issue of immortality, what she called her flood subject, haunts her poetry and letters. It is, one might say, a shamanic issue, what happens after death. She lived in an age when the secular spirit was on the rise.
if Holger Kalwit, a contemporary expert on shamanism, can write that today the one-eyed paradigm of materialism is in a state of decline, in Dickinson's day, just the opposite was true. She was a student of science and observed the world with the eye of a scientist. Faith is a fine invention when gentlemen can see, but microscopes are prudent in an emergency. Yet she would probably not argue with Michael Horner's observa observation that shamans say that we need to talk to plants and trees, animals and rocks because our lives and our spirits are connected with theirs. In shamanic cultures, all things are seen to be interrelated and interdependent. Everything that exists is alive. Although nature can be the blonde assassin that beheads the happy flower in accidental power she is also a living being to be revered touch lightly nature's sweet guitar unless thou knowest the tune or every bird will point at thee because a bard too soon <laughs> here dickinson suggests one shouldn't interpret nature poetically until one is qualified initiated as it were I agree because it shows in one of her most famous poems she writes I taste a liquor never brewed from tankards scooped in pearl inebriate of air am I and debauchy, debauchy of dew in modern parlance she gets high on nature <laughs> even a casual acquaintance with her poetry will show how intimate she feels with nature her intimacy is akin to what Owen Barfield calls original part participation, the essence of which, Barfield says, is that there stands be behind the phenomena a represented which, which is of the same nature as me. In a fragmentary poem, she declares, to see the summer sky is poetry, one of the few poems to which she assigned a title my cricket Johnson poems of okay goes as follows further in summer than the birds pathetic from the grass a minor nation celebrates its unobtrusive mass no ordinance be seen so gradual the grace a pensive custom it becomes enlarging loneliness antiquest felt at noon when august burning low arise this spectral canticle reposed to tip typify remit as yet no grace no furrow on the glow yet a druidic difference enhances nature now the vocabulary of religious ritual and the reference to pre-christian myth a druidic difference indicates that like the shaman she has recognized that nature is endowed with sacred life Poem 986, in which the speaker is a man, illustrates the original participation such, such a recognition permits. A narrow fellow in the grass occasionally rides. You may have met him. Did you not his notice sudden? Did you not his notice sudden is the grass divides as with a comb. A spotted shaft is seen, and then it closes at your feet and opens further on. 
He likes a boggy acre, a floor too cool for corn. Yet when a boy and barefoot, I more than once at noon have passed, I thought a whiplash unbraiding in the sun. When stooping to secure it, it wrinkled and was gone. Several of nature's people I know, and they know me. I feel for them a transport of cordiality. But never met this fellow attended or alone without a tighter breathing and zero at the bone. The speaker of this poem has an intimate spiritual relationship with nature. He feels a transport of cordiality for nature's people. Feeling zero at the bone suggests there's something in Dickinson's psyche that matches or at least connects with the snake. The snake is a projection of her psyche, something she encounters on the outside that's already inside, perhaps an extension of the animus that frightens her on account of its cold-blooded ruthlessness, possibly her objectivity as an artist. Yeah. Integrating the shadow, man. It's accepting all your... It's accepting everything, man. Okay, another extraordinary snake poem illustrates my point. In winter in my room, I came upon a worm, pink, lank, and warm. But as she was a worm, and worms presume not quite with him at home, secured him by a string to something neighboring and went along. A trifle afterward, a thing occurred. I'd not believe it if I heard, but state with creeping blood, a snake with models rare, surveyed, surveyed by chamber floor, in feature as the worm before, but ringed with power, the very string with which I tied him, too, when he was mean and knew that string was there. I shrank, how fair you are, propitiation's claw, afraid he hissed of me, no cordiality, he fathomed me. Then to a rhythm slim, secreted in his form, as patterns swim, projected him. That time I flew both eyes his way, lest he pursue, nor ever cease to run, till in a distant town, towns on from mine, I set me down. This was a dream. The last line indicates clearly that this poem, like Whitman's The Sleepers, expresses the contents of the unconscious. In my opinion, I think the unconscious is like, um... So when they say the sins of the father is, is passed on to the future generations, or to this, you know, it's, it's basically, I think, if, let's say, your parents did not individuate in their lives meaning if your parents didn't integrate their shadow if 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 they did so i think if we think of memory or dna as vibrations then I think those certain vibrations get passed on in the genes, and uh, and we're seeing that genetic. Uh, we do carry stuff from our parents uh, genetically, and and those people are more prone to certain things than other people. So, 
I think uh, the unconscious is just all this energy that like in the Gospel of Thomas he says whatever is inside if you don't bring it out it, okay no, what is it whatever is in, you have to bring out what is inside because if you don't bring out what is inside it will kill you but if you bring out what is inside what it or what you bring out will save you so basically energy I think is energy your heart beats you have to breathe in you have to breathe out you can't just breathe in all the time you have to breathe out also it's an exchange of energy it's when you are breathing you are commu you are basically communicating you are you are in relationship with with uh, all of it the universe because you are living off of it literally so once that communication stops well then the body doesn't isn't animated anymore it's inanimate it it doesn't move anymore so you're fucking dead you don't breathe no more your heart isn't beating no more i think psychology is a study of energy in human bodies it's all vibration i think anyways on a first reading it's almost impossible to interpret the poem as portraying a freudian fear of sex afraid of intimacy uh cordiality the speaker feels more than zero at the bone she feels a mixture of attraction how fair you are and fear nor ever cease to run the worm that becomes a snake is obviously obviously sexual the flaccid penis that becomes the erect phallus and where the speaker clearly masculine as in a narrow fellow in the grass the implications would be even more intriguing than they are they are already I mean, also, some of the stuff you see visually, let's say, is pretty hard to put into words when you come back on this side. So, you have to do the dance yourself to understand, to, to, to speak your own language, to understand the symbols. I mean, you can only, you're the only one capable of translating your own dreams, really. All right. Um, the worm snake is elemental, phallic, thonic, and the speaker at first tries to control this potent archetype, symbolic, as J.E. Serlot writes, of energy itself, of, of force, pure and simple. Jung points out that in Egyptian myth, the snake because the snake because it casts its skin is a symbol of renewal and a sun symbol which was believed to be of masculine sex only and to beget itself the renewal here is actually a transformation from a relatively harmless worm to a scary and sexy snake <laughs> and a scene reminiscent of eve's temptation in the garden of eden the snake fathomed the speaker as if exploring her desire and depth physically and psychically sexual as he undeniably is i suggest the snake also symbolizes dickinson's own latent power as a poet fecund she has power to re recreate herself as does the snake ringed with power and to fathom and project as he does 
and she fears this immense potential. Yeah, it's the Kundalini rising. It's 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 uh, it's your anima, the the goddess. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's fucking Kali, man. You gonna you gonna you gonna learn today, boy. <laughs> All right. Um. Because we do not know when Dickinson wrote this poem, a precisely biographical interpretation is impossible and probably, in any event, not necessary. The body of her work demonstrates that she learned to use her power, and that the poet in her conquered, the poet in her, conquered her deeply felt fears of poetic ruthlessness by proceeding with her calling. Eliada notes that there basically are two ways of becoming a shaman, hereditary transmission or spontaneous vocation. A call, in other words, not unlike the Puritan notion of election. Dickinson describes her call to become a poet thus. Conversation of the mind, like sanctifying in the soul, is witnessed, not explained. Exactly. You just observe it. You can't, there's, there's no ways to, you just, the original Image is always an image. You have to you have to just witness. Twas a divine insanity. The danger to be sane should I ag- again experience. <laughs> yeah, you have to lose your mind. She is recalling how her reading of Elizabeth Barrett Browning called her to poetry. She, poetry. She continues. Tis antidote to turn to tomes of solid witchcraft. Magicians be asleep. But magic hath an element like deity to keep. Like the shaman, the poet is a magician, a maker of witchcraft, insane to outsiders. This idea is echoed in a well-known poem. Much madness is divinest sense. <laughs> to a discerning eye, much sense the starkest madness. Till the majority in this as all prevail. Ascent, and you are sane. Demur you're straightway dangerous and hand hand led with a chain poet adrian rich comments insightfully about this poem it is an extremely painful and dangerous way to live split between a publicly acceptable persona and a part of yourself that you perceive as the essential the creative and powerful self yet also as yet also as possibly unacceptable, perhaps even monstrous. Pain, as we shall see, is an essential part of the experience of the shaman poet. Oh yeah, you have no idea. (laughs) The riddle we can guess, Dickinson writes. We speedily despise. Not anything is stale so long as yesterday's surprise. Dang what a fucking light we speedily despise not anything is stale so long as yesterday's surprise the riddle is one of her chief rhetorical devices a device typical of the shaman poet as well as of the trickster archetype betraying the superior knowledge that comes with the secrets of the profession she writes for example of a loss without indicating quite what has been lost Consider two poems on similar themes. I never lost as much but twice, and that was in the sod. 
Twice have I stood a beggar before the door of God. Angels, twice descending, reimbursed my store. Burglar, banker, father, I am poor one more. My life closed twice before its close. It yet remains to see if immortality unveil a third event to me. So huge, so hopeless to conceive as these that twice befell. Parting is all we know of heaven and all we need of hell. Poetry, man, it just, it just, it's just words, it's just images on whatever that you read, and because of the way it works, I guess, it literally just takes you somewhere else, man. it takes your mind, anyways. The poem that begins, my life had stood a loaded gun, also relies on the riddle, but it is far more complex. My life had stood, a loaded gun, in corners till a day. The owner passed, identified, and carried me away. And now we roam in sovereign woods, and now we hunt the doe. And every time I speak for him, the mountains straight reply. And do I smile such cordial light upon the valley glow. It is as a Vesuvian face had led its pleasure through. And when at night our good day done, I guard my master's head. Tis better than the eater duck's deep pillow to have shared. To foe of his I'm deadly foe. None stir the second time on whom I lay a yellow eye or an emphatic thumb. Though I than he may longer live, he longer must than I. For I have but the power to kill without the power to die. God damn, man. <laughs> this poem has elicited an amazing amount of critical comment. Rich believes it is about possession by a daemon. Not a demon, a daemon. D-A-E-M-O-N. About the dangers and risks of such possession if you are a woman. About the knowledge that power in a woman can seem destructive. And that you cannot live without the daemon once it has possessed you. Helen McNeil believes the poem is a definition of self as pure artistic agency. The speaker of the poem, she adds, is feminine, masculine, and an object and an animal, all sexes and none, a commanding voice for the expression of knowledge. This gun clearly is a poet, and a satanically ambitious poet at that. The irony of the riddling final quatrain, moreover, hints that it is the gun and not the master, the poet and not her muse, who will have the last word. Yeah, this master thing is the self-projection from Bicameral Mind, um, the movie True Romance, when he's talking to his projected self in the mirror who shows up as Elvis, played by Val Kilmer. Yeah, this is probably the integrated anima animus figure. They're dancing. It's the it's the beloved, the one you dance with, man. It's your beloved, man. All right. Judith Farr sees the poem as primarily an accomplished and mysterious ballad with suggestions of Elizabethan 
obliquity and physicality. She suggests looking at the speaker by turns as a boy, then as a woman, always keeping in mind the pleasure the speaker experiences, and that for Dickinson, love is always the muse. She herself, the gun, the artist, can never die like a real woman. She is but the arresting voice that speaks to and for the master. Camille Pugli... Camille Paglia, as might be expected, provides the most arresting critical commentary. The most blatant of Dickinson's masculine self-portraits is My Life Had Stood a Loaded Gun, where she is a totem of phallic force. Ah, I see. The owner or master is only he a pronoun. She is the real power, without which he cannot act. This poem is one of Romanticism's great transsexual self-transformations. The poet is reaching for the remotest extreme of sex experience. That Dickinson frequently adopts a male persona is a given, so that Paglia's and McNeil's comments are, in this respect, not astonishing. Yeah, this is the, this is the thing with shamans. They, they, um, they are very... Once you once you go into the inner parts of you and you realize what you are, then you understand that your out outward physical manifestation is is look, man. It's we all start off as female, as female, in the womb. Okay. The clit and the penis. It's the same thing, man. One is on the outside, one up on the inside. Because, <laughs> oh my God, it's because it's the, it's like breathing, it's like the heartbeat, in out, in out. <laughs> you need, you need both sexes for humanity to even exist, man. But both physical manifestations have to come from one image, right? Yeah. Why do why do men have nipples? We don't fucking breastfeed. <laughs> we don't produce milk. We all start off as female, dude. All right. Hmm. Where the fuck was I? Oh yeah. To add my own contribution to the welter of commentary surrounding this poem, I think it pertinent to note that the poem, like many of Dickinson's, is a narrative, albeit told in lyrical form, that is, it is a ballad, as, okay, as, as Farr points out, although she is rightly known as a lyric poet, Dickinson does indeed tell stories, as does the shaman when he or she talks about out-of-body experiences and visits to the afterworld or spirit world. Her subjects in the concluding stanza again conclude shamanic concerns, mortality and immortality. I say spirit world because it's like, it's basically your consciousness shifting from this physical realm to a different realm. And when you go to sleep, when you have those, those, those dreams that feel like they're real, it's like, yeah, what what is happening? It's it's just your consciousness can 
travel through different dimensions, I think. Or is there an e anyways? Her subjects is a okay. The concluding two lines for I have the power to kill without the power to die do indeed as Paglia suggests indicate the speaker may be a vampire and in fact a shamanic method of healing is to suck blood from the person who is ill so that here we have evidence of a positive side of the vampire archetype. I tend to agree too that Dickinson is at least here an androgyny. For I have the power to kill without the power to die. Oh, I see. This poem, as well as numerous others, such as Patterson discusses in the article I cite above, presents a persona whose gender is ambiguous. To suggest, as Theodora Ward does, citing Jung as her authority, that the image of man in woman represents the woman's mind, and that a large proportion of Dickinson's poems bear this out. It is, to say the least, an oversimplification and reduction of Jung's ideas. Anyways, let me get to this one part. <laughs> okay, let me see here. It's quite a long um, article, but it's good. Alright, so... Um, trying to think where I should start from. Alright, 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 let me see. Yeah, fuck it, I'll do it from here. Um, as I've indicated, part of the shaman's initiation is a symbolic death and rebirth, and the drum, as Eliada notes, has a role of the first importance in shamanic ceremonies. Drumming carries the shaman to the center of the world, which can be the bridge itself, or enables him to fly through the air, or summons and imprisons the spirits, or the drumming enables the shaman to concentrate and regain contact with the spiritual world through which he is preparing to travel. Cynthia, Cynthia Griffin Wolf has shown that Dickinson's Plank in Reason alludes to the iconography of conservative mid-19th century religious culture. She includes in her discussion a picture of what looks like a plank labeled Faith in Homes and Barbers Religious Allegories. The plank stretches from, stretches from solid rock through clouds to the celestial kingdom of heaven. A man holding the Bible walks across on the plank. The emblem is called walking by faith and is based on 2 Corinthians 5-7 for we walk by faith, not by sight. Mm, sight, really? Wolf concludes that having renounced faith, Dickinson substitutes a plank in reason which breaks because no rational which breaks because no rational explanation can be adequate 
to bridge the abyss between earth and heaven. The poem concludes with a fall that is an apotheosis of confusion. Of course, Dickinson, as Wolf surely knows, never entirely renounced faith, and I question whether this poem, unlike others such as I died for beauty but was was scarce, or because I could not stop for death, is truly written from the posthumous point of view. Rather, I suggest it describes psychic pain so great it's like a great funeral ceremony separating the poet from the common lives of others. It describes the symbolic death a shaman must endure. The plank is analogous to the bridge, and reason alone, as Wolf says, will not achieve the transport to the other side. It takes being done with knowing in a rational sense to do that. It takes spiritual knowing, shamanic transformation, the kind of experience she describes in poem, poem 875. I stepped from plank to plank, a slow and cautious way. The stars about the stars about my head I felt about my feet the sea. I knew not, but the next would be my final inch. This gave me that precarious gait some call experience. I disagree with Wolf that the last line of this poem explicitly repudiates religious or transcendent implications and converts the verse, the verse into no more than an aphoristic definition. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, sorry. Before you thought of spring, except as a surmise, you see, God bless his suddenness, a fellow in the skies of independent hues, a little weather-worn, inspiring habiliments of indigo and brown, with specimens of song as if for you to choose discretion in the interval with gay delays, he goes to some superior tree without a single leaf and shouts for joy to nobody but his sapphiric self. The seed form of such bird song, as Joan Halifax declares, is found in the psyche of the shaman. The bird is a transcendental symbol, a spiritual symbolic par excellence, as the adjective seraphic implies. Using bird imagery, Dickinson writes, with pinions of disdain, the soul can further fly than any feather specified in ornithology the soul then transcends the symbol and shaman like flies like the bridge or plank jacob's ladder also extends from earth to heaven and jacob's wrestling with the angel at peniel is a favorite biblical story for dickinson because that's complete shamanism right there referring to the poem recounting this story wolf writes jacob the wrestler was a model for the poet pugilist Jacob's struggle was a starting point for Dickinson as artist. Dickinson alludes to the story in the final lines of the poem that begins, How dare the robins sing? Extinct be every hum in deference to him whose garden wrestles with the dew at daybreak overcome. The struggle Wolf refers to is the pain and suffering required of the shaman poet. The reward comes in the rare moments one is allowed to climb the ladder to insight 
and transcendence to ecstasy, one of Dickinson's favorite, favorite words. Take all away from me, she writes, but leave me ecstasy. <laughs> yeah, she's a fucking mystic poet, shaman, explaining, expressing her fucking soul in in the spirit world man jacob's ladder is emblematic of the world tree which connects the three cosmic zones or planes in which shamans believe the world to be configured underworld earth and sky yeah even the fucking naga sadhus in india they in the kum mela they still do this shit they climb the ladders jacob's ladder yeah they do it fucking butt naked with dreads and all man fucking epic man <laughs> Far more prominent in Dickinson, however, is another axis connecting the three worlds, the cosmic mountain. As Elietta asserts, the two symbols, world tree and cosmic mountain, are complementary, and it is only the shamans and the heroes who actually scale the cosmic mountain. It's a volcano. It's a fucking volcano. Now Dickinson, a neo-shaman, never actually reaches the other side of the mountain. A little like Moses, something positive that must be seized by the bold. I do remember when a child with bolder playmates straying to where a brook that seemed a sea withheld us by its roaring from just a purple flower beyond until constrained to clutch it, if doom itself were the result, the boldest leaped and clutched it. I laugh in the face of danger. Ha <laughs> ha As in so many for her poems, she seems to be saying that we know the opposites by each other. Here, death by what we know of life. You won't appreciate your life until you go see some people who are dying. Then you'll see. <laughs> As we have seen, she compares herself to Vesuvius in My Life Had Stood Still. Or in my life had stood a loaded gun, just as she does in poems. Okay. Volcanoes be in Sicily and South America. I judge from my geography. Volcanoes nearer here. A lava step at any time. Am I inclined to climb a crater? I may contemplate Vesuvius at home. The image of the volcano as herself is a potent symbol but also like her famous, albeit, oh my goodness, poem, uh, her famous poem, I Never Saw More, it shows the shamanic ability to travel to foreign places without leaving home. This is why I say the Wizard of Oz uh, is is shamanic. You, you, um, what's the fucking saying, man? You tap your heels, whatever, three times, and you go home. Fucking Alice in Wonderland. It's all fucking shamanic stories, man. A shaman is able to do this by means of her ability to travel the world axis. Sometimes she celebrates that axis just as, just as she has flown via her intuition and imagination to see it. Even fucking Aladdin and the flying carpet, I can show you the world. Yes, it is all shamanic. Ah, Tenerife, retreating mountain, purples of ages, pause for you, sunset, reviews her sapphire regiment, day drops you hear, day 
drops you her red adieu, still clad in your mail of ices, thigh of granite and thew of steel, heedless alike of pomp or parting. Ah, Tenerife, I'm kneeling still. Wolf interprets this poem as an image of nature as distant from human concerns and utterly independent both of God's force and of mankind's needs. Because the speaker knows no other way to manifest her respect, she concludes her meditation by kneeling in reverence. I suspect there's more Wolf in this comment than there's Dickinson. Okay, anyways. Well, let me read. Okay, a 19th century critic would probably label the speaker's reverence pantheistic, but I would call it an example of original participation, what Lucien Levy Brule called partic participation mystique. Consider that consider what Jungian psychotherapist D. Stevenson Bond says. The this guy's actual last name is Bond. Hmm. The experience of participation mystique is bound up with a subjective perception of intensity, usually an emotion, emotional and physical intensity. Perhaps the greater the intensity, the more likely it is that objects will be experienced as having a life of their own. That Dickinson never actually saw the snow-capped volcanic peak of Tenerife in the Canaries, the Canaries? with her physical eyes is evidence of the intensity of her participation. She projects something of herself whom she sees as a volcano onto Tenerife. Exactly, because that is exactly how it works. We project everything. We project ourselves on the outside. So when you go look at a big ass mountain, you go like, whoa. It looks huge. Yeah, because we're projecting ourselves on the mountain and then it's bouncing back inside us vibrations. And it feels awesome. Because projection, that's what we're doing. Your eyes are a two way fucking device, man. Alright. The mountain is hardly distant from human affairs or from God. In a most profound sense, it is human. It is God, just as it and God is in, and therefore is the speaker herself. Yes, this the 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 the, the Trinity is inside you, man. Fucking you, being the observer inside God, realizing you're doing this. You are aware of your awareness. The Trinity, right there. The prism. You. The human body is the awareness that is seeing the light go into you like a prism and re and refracting and that experience you are experiencing that that awareness that you are doing all this is the is the, is the trinity it connects the three worlds she as a shaman poet is most concerned with If the number of poems with a posthumous speaker weren't evidence enough of Dickinson's interest in the underworld, one of her few poems published in her lifetime, and one of her better poems, 
should confirm her interest. Safe in their alabaster chambers, untouched by morning and untouched by noon, sleep the meek members of the resurrection, rafter of satin and roof of stone. Even though she sees the members of the resurrection as sleeping, a modern point of view, the poem is sufficient to show her interest in the afterworld. Tis anguish grander than delight, tis resurrection pain, the meeting bands of smitten face we question to again. Tis transport wild as thrills the graves, when cerements let go, and creatures clad in miracle go up by two and two. Here she writes as a true believer in the Christian doctrine of the resurrection. The number of poems which show her interest in the middle and upper cosmic zones are, are almost too numerous to give adequate examples. She has an incredible number of poems about flowers, birds, butterflies, sunsets, and many other aspects of nature. And an amazing number of these are introverted, introverted poems that examine the meaning of these and other images vis-a-vis -vis her inner life, her psyche. Tis sunrise, little maid, hast thou no station in the day? Twas not thy wont to hinder so, retrieve thy industry. Tis noon, my little maid, alas, and art thou sleeping yet? The lily waiting to be wed, the bee hast thou forgot. <laughs> My little maid, tis night, alas, that night should be to thee instead of morning. Hadst thou broached, broached thy little plan to die, dissuade thee if I could not. Sweet, I might have aided thee. Gilbert and Gubar call this one of Dickinson's most chilling dramatic monologues. Dickinson interweaves images of three periods of the day, sunrise, noon, and night, with the lily and the bee to create a portrait of the shadow archetype. Hmm. Because it is an archetype, the shadow or double can be positive as well as negative. Shamans can sometimes become animals which thus become their archetypal doubles. Eliado writes, We might speak of a new identity for the shaman who becomes an animal spirit and speaks, sings, or flies like the animals and birds. Moreover, the tutelary animal not only enables the shaman to transform himself, it is in a manner his double, his alter ego. In Dickinson, we find at least a parallel to this idea in the following delightful poem. In delightful love poem because the bee may blameless hum for thee a bee do I become list even unto me god damn man this is what I'm saying because the bee may blameless hum for thee a bee do I become list even unto me because the flowers unafraid may lift a look on thine, a maid away, a maid all way a flower would be, nor robins, robins need not hide, 
when thou upon their crypts intrude, so wings bestow on me, or petals, or a doer of buzz that be to ride, or flower of furs, I that I that way worship thee. Sanying the bees and the birds and water will show you the secrets of how this universe works, man. To say the least, the speaker of this poem is androgynous. The bee, the robin, even the flower are all masculine images. The beloved is apparently a she. So what we have so that we have another example of gender crossing and same-sex love where the speaker transforms herself into a bee, a robin, and a flower of furs. There is no fucking <laughs> biological sex literally is 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 a uh, well, it's a let's say it's a lock and key. How about that to 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 rid yourself of even though if it's momentarily yeah it's basically you open the door to a different world if you know what you're doing basically that's how it's supposed to work but anyways mm, such transformation is typical not only of the shaman but also of the trickster archetype for example as Elietta notes the Nordic trickster Loki can take various animal shapes. Other tricksters from North American Indian culture, which are associated with the shaman, are raven and otter. Note how in the following, Dickinson subtly identifies with the bird. Yeah, because back in the day, apparently, the shamans, the great shamans, could... Um, basically jump their consciousness from let's say the bear then to the owl or the eagle and basically just jump consciousness because if you think about it you're just a GPS location of of a point in space time you're a bubble of time basically you're an air bubble of time okay and what what if you could just take your your ego is basically your focusing point of of that awareness of consciousness okay so that pinhead where the the infinite is peering into the finite the what Alan was how Alan was says you are the aperture through which the universe observes itself it's an echo it's uh, it's your heartbeat and out and out. It's a black hole. It's light. It's an umbilical cord. It's um, it's the world tree. It's it's the it's the it's the lily go growing out of Brahman's navel. It's uh, the volcano coming out of the ocean floor. It's. <laughs> It's sacred geometry. How do I explain this? You have to... Okay. She staked her feathers, gained an arc, debated, rose again, this time beyond the estimate of envy or of men. And now, among circumference, her steady boat be seen at home among the billow 
as the bow where she was born. A boat is also a symbol of a vagina. A boat, carry, a boat carries men, and out of the boat come out all these men. It's basically a symbol of of of, of ants on a leaf. <laughs> all right. Anyways, the bird symbolizes transcendence, the kind that achieves circumference. Another of Dickinson's favorite words. If the cosmic mountain and the world tree are the center the axis then circumference con contains the achievement of wholeness what Jung calls the self taken as a whole it is what her poetry achieves the culmination of her personal myth here is a final example of Dickinson's original participation my faith is larger than the hills so when the hills decay, decay my faith must take the purple wheel to show the sun the way Tis first he steps upon the vein, and then upon the hill, and then abroad the world he go, to do his golden will. And if his yellow feet should miss, the bird would not arise, the flowers would slumber on their stems, no bells have paradise. How dare I therefore stint a faith on which so vast depends, lest firmament should fail for me the rivet in the bands. This poem reminds me of Jung's discussion recounted in Aniela Jaffe's oral biography of him, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, with a Taos Pueblo chief who said, We are a people who live on the roof of the world. We are the sons of the Father's Son, and with our religion we daily help our Father to go across the sky. We do this not only for ourselves, but for the whole world. If we were to seize practicing our religion in 10 years the sun would no longer rise then it would be night forever the shaman poet is the rivet that holds human life together on this planet to a rational extroverted mind this idea is absurd note however that bond writes our culture is now experiencing the death of myth which is precisely what Jung meant when he said that when the aging myths of former generations pass away, the myth-making process is constellated in the lives of individuals. For the birth of the personal myth in the imagination of a single individual may become the rebirth of the greater myths in the imagination of the culture. Yes, exactly. That's how the subconscious mind works. All these people making art, movies, uh, writing books, all just just expressing themselves you'll see the themes like fucking adults uh uh rolling in the deep it's mother nature singing telling us well you guys better get your shit together where i'm rolling in the deep and I'm, <laughs> it's like so many of our songs think of it as mother nature if gaia was singing to you if gaia was singing to you to mankind through fucking uh, Adele's songs. <laughs> we are the lover. Nature is is is. If if you want to do Christ, Christ, Christian symbolism, then the church, which is the symbol for the bride, is fucking Mother Nature Gaia, dude. And here we are destroying the planet. Anyways, uh, where where was I? Uh, 
poem I've just quoted is part of Emily Dickinson's personal myth, one rooted like shamanism itself in the collective unconscious of our species. The high regard Dickinson had for poetry she illustrates in the following poem. To pile like thunder to its close, then crumble grand away while everything created hid. This would be poetry. Or love, the two coeval or love, the two coval come, we both and neither prove, experience either and consume, for none see God and live. Like a traditional shaman, she would, after great pain, see God and live. Dickinson, of course, is not a traditional shaman, she is a neo-shaman, who equates the archetype of love with poetry, and through that poetry does what shamans have always done. She explores the major issues of human life, love, ecstasy, pain, suffering, death, doubt, faith, the afterlife, a higher power, and she reports what she's found. That was her job on earth, her personal myth, her letter to the world. And I guarantee you there's a whole bunch of shamans out there who don't know that they are shamans yet. Peace. <laughs>